Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we speak with James Lalonde, co-founder of Yodo One, Yoli, and RTM Asia. We start out discussing innovation in Japan, where James began his software career versus innovation in China. As a three-time founder in China, we then talk about why starting a business in China as a foreigner is not as uniquely complex as one might think. We also talk about how James' company Yodo One became one of the top five mobile game publishers in China, then moving into a discussion on how the startup ecosystems that exist in China can vary greatly city to city. We then chat about James' thoughts on the future of work and how well he believes post-secondary education in China sets up graduates to be successful in the workforce. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. We then discuss the One Belt, One Road initiative, something James is a bit of an expert and thought leader on. Enjoy. I don't feel the, the higher education system prepares anyone for the work of tomorrow very well at all. I think people feel like they have to go for advanced degrees because to get them an edge up in the job placement market, we're hiring MBAs and masters and sometimes PhD with very little practical experience at all. And they've been living a fantasy, kind of educational fantasy for, for, for many years. And they have a really hard time when they come in in their mid, maybe even late 20s into the job market, wanting to prove themselves by the time they're 30 so they can say they've made it. And it puts a lot of pressure on them. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. James, thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time. Todd, my pleasure. Glad to be here. If you wouldn't mind, why don't we start with a little bit of your background, where you come from, and how you ended up in Asia. Grew up in Texas, uh, mostly in Austin. Went to the University of Texas in Austin. We had a... Um, I was an economics major, so we had, a, had to take a foreign language. Most of my buddies in university were taking Spanish because we're right next to Mexico in Texas. There's a lot of Spanish bouncing around, and that was the easy one. And I thought to help my major, I'd take Japanese. It literally almost kicked my ass. And then I ended up uh, finding out in the uh, study, I never met any Japanese except for my teacher while I was there, but I did run into a bunch of Koreans who were doing much better in the class than, than I was. And so I was always of the mind, if you can't, um, if you can't beat them, join them. So I started studying with the Koreans and that ends up being at their house in the evenings and cooking and eating with them. And, and so I got, this kind of weird exposure to Asia in my university days that, that kind of took hold of me. And so I, I ended up, uh, when I went, I was always messing with computers. I had started a couple companies in, in university that, you know, were involved using computers to do stuff, automate things. I will save you the details, but, and I was an entrepreneur from the beginning. And so when I went interviewing for jobs, I had this really, you know, thing about me, which pissed off a lot of people, I'm sure, in, the, in these job fairs. I said, 
if you don't send me to Japan, I'm, I'm not going to join your company. And so uh, that didn't work out really well for a really long time. Um, and so I ended up getting an internship with IBM in Japan, in Japan, in Tokyo. And, um, and I got hooked. It was a big city, completely different from anything in Texas. And, and, uh, and you know, I basically wanted to figure out how to work there since, since all that. So that's what got me to Asia. I'd like to start with juxtaposing innovation in Japan versus China, but not just a snapshot because they have both been in such a constant state of change for as long as we can remember. Would you mind introducing us to what your first sentiments might have been as you developed your early software career in Japan, how it changed over the course of your career, and then perhaps even more so as you transitioned to being in China full time? Well, I was, you know, extremely interested in China. There just wasn't a lot of... Uh opportunities to get into China at that time. Uh, so I, I went to Japan in 1990 and, uh, and uh, my first visit to China was in 94. But, you know, it, so people like to lump them together. I think they're quite different. Um, you know, if you look at, and the, and in my point of view, and so I'm going to say my, my opinions here. So there's going to be a lot of people who may not agree with them, but in my point of view, um, the Chinese and the Americans are really um, good at kind of zero to one innovation. You know, something that doesn't exist in creating something completely net new. And the Japanese are really, really good at and have been historically really good at it, at iterating and making things that already exist much better than they started out with. And uh, I know it's kind of a cliche now, but I'll give you some examples. You know. Um, a lot of people like Japanese food, but things like tempura, you know, um, came from Dutch traders, fried foods, uh, things like sushi came from the Chinese. They just make it better. I've had some of the best Italian food I've ever had in my life, not in Italy, but in, in Tokyo. Uh, same goes for French food. I mean, the Japanese take something that's pretty good already and make it much better. And it's this kind of... Uh, there's this word called shokunin, but there's this craftsman ethic that's really there. Uh, it's also, um, you know, I think part of it comes from the fact that they're an island. They're an island country. They're battered by typhoons and earthquakes and natural disasters. And they're, you know, they're, they're, there's, there's a survival thing there. Um, they adapt. They integrate from the outside. And I'll... And being someone who speaks a lot of languages, I, I actually look at it from that perspective. And if you look at Japanese, the, the actual, you know, number of words in the Japanese language, only around 33, 35% of them are actually originally Japanese words from the beginning of time. They have integrated so many languages into their language. They have four alphabets. They have the Chinese alphabet. They have the one specifically for foreign language words, they have the one, they have two for their own phonetic spellings. And so um, it's just amazing. And you look at something like uh, Chinese or English, those are the languages that actually have given the world the most things from their language. So there's a lot of Chinese words that are in other languages. There's a lot of English words, as you know, in other languages. Um, and Mandarin Chinese only has about 2% of outside words. They're very resistant to taking on, um, you know, outside influences and, and like to develop from within. Um, so there's a lot of 
things there that, that, that a lot of people don't, don't think about. And I think about these things this way. And so I, you know, um, I always knew when I was working at Silicon Valley companies that if we sold in the Japanese market, their demands on quality would be high enough that, that they would make our products better. Uh, Chinese and Americans tend to bring products to market faster, see how they go. Quality is not the number one concern. There's almost a, an obsession with quality in the Japan market. And again, some of this is well known, some of this is not well known. So, uh, but this is how I, I think about it. And so I was personally surprised after being four years in uh, Japan, making my first trip over to China in 94 and realizing all this stuff that I thought was all Japanese culture, I look around me and go, wow, it all came, a lot of it came from China. And it's just, maybe the Japanese made it better or more palatable to the world or whatever. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. And I know it's oversimplifying things, but that's kind of how I look at it. So when you think of innovation, you know, um, if you want to make a product better, uh, put a Japanese team on it. If you want to make uh, get a brand new idea that doesn't exist anywhere in the world right now, you know, it's either going to be an American or a Chinese uh, company that's going to run with it. You have founded three companies in China and written a book called The Tao of Startups. What are some of the unique challenges foreign founders face starting up in China? And what is your advice in overcoming them? Well, this one I'll certainly disappoint because I don't have any, there's no magic bullet here. I mean. I actually think starting a company anywhere is, uh, is, is pretty much the same. I mean, you know, starting the company and being in versus being successful are, are two different things. And I don't think China, a lot of people like to think they come with this assumption when they ask, I get asked this question quite a lot actually. And the assumption is that it's really hard to do a, you know, to set up a company and to do things in China as a foreigner. And I, and having lived in, in many foreign countries I, and, and operated and worked there, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, and I also think the, the kind of, um, and I've written this extensively in, in my book, The Top Startups, about, you know, it's, it's, it's really about how you approach getting your idea to market and those things are really um, not specific to any culture. The concept of entrepreneurship and the being successful as an entrepreneur is not necessarily a cultural thing. Let me give you an example. Um, you, you definitely don't want to start a startup by yourself. There are very few examples of people that start really massive, scalable, large, successful startups, especially in technology, um, by themselves. It's usually a team of people, usually two, maybe three. You start getting into four and five, it's too much and it's actually counterproductive. And that's my, that's my feeling and the data, the data backs that up. Um, and then, you know, I think you, you have to find the right partner. So if in your startup you need someone who understands the language better than you or understands the market better than you, by all means, you know, find them in a co-founder or an early employee or whatever. But, um, you know, those are, those are key things. And then it's really about the, the product fit and are you really solving a problem 
for people because start doing startups wasn't very popular at all. Actually very unpopular, especially among parents. And, you know, it wasn't seen as a career choice when I started doing startups, but now it's seen as, as a, as a viable opportunity. And you have a lot of young people getting into it, wanting to start a company and going through some motions, but it's really about solving people's problems and building the product that's, that's going to resonate and, and failing a lot in the process and learning, learning from those failures. And those things aren't really uh, country based or, or whatever. And, uh, so at a general level, that's, that's how I think about it. I'd like to talk about one of your companies right now, Yodo One. Now, Yodo One uses and has as one of its core advantages a suite of AI-powered products for both you and partners of your company. How much of an advantage is it for your company to be in China, given that China is the leading country in the world when it comes to AI-based innovation? Well, Beijing is a magnet because of the universities for AI talent from across the, uh, the country, you know, bar none. Um, and so we have exposure to a lot of talent. Um, and while they're not cheap, they don't actually command Silicon Valley wages. And the, the, real, the real issue with and it's good for us right now is the real issue with people who studied AI, and there's going to be many more people studying AI in the future in China than there will be anywhere else in the world. So it's only going to, they're only going to move from strength to strength. But every person who studied this really wants to find a job where they can apply what they've learned. There's a lot of theory to it. It's really, you know, and, and we, attract people by very clearly articulating them you will not be wearing a white white robe and running around in a, in a data laboratory here you're actually gonna create solutions that didn't exist find out things that help optimize business processes and and, and customer uh, experiences um, through your work, you're it's going to, you know, and you may come up with something that within three months with the help of the, the product teams will, will be in front of customers or, or, or making impact on revenue or whatever. So we tend to lead with that and it really excites uh, a good percentage of the young people that we, we, we end up hiring. And, you know, people, people, people like to see what they're doing actually help people or, or get used, if you know what I mean, especially people who are, are technical. And so we leverage that as a strength. And, and being in Beijing is just a way for us to find really good people who are really hungry to, to, to do those things uh, at, a again, a reasonable price. I wouldn't say that anyone in the, in the space who has skills is cheap, but uh, uh, it, uh, they're easy to hire as far as the monetary side. We're still a startup. We're a large startup, but we're still a startup. So we are very cost conscious and being here is, the, is, is very important to our success. I'd be interested to hear your opinion on the different ecosystems, the startup ecosystems that exist in China. I know that all the way from Chengdu to Chongqing to Beijing to, to Shenzhen, they're quite different. So even if we just say, look at Beijing and Shenzhen, can you talk a little bit about how different those startup ecosystems can be even within the same country? Okay. At the risk of, again, making some generalizations, 
Yeah. So Beijing is not really um, good at marketing itself as far as, I mean, it's the capital of China. Like what else do we have to say? It's kind of as far as it ever goes. They don't, they don't try to market themselves as a place for foreign companies to establish bases. They've got enough internal demand. They don't, they don't tout themselves as the leader in this or that and the other. Just, just not, just not part of the, the vibe in Beijing. But the reality is, is if you're in software, if you're in um, AI, if you're in computing, this is where uh, the universities are. This is where the government contracts are. This is where the, the bulk of the, the startups are, the unicorns are. This is the place. Now, if you're talking about assembling something and you're, you're building a very high-end electronic or very, even very low-end electronic devices, you want them built fast and you want to test the market with a, a prototype or whatever, you know, your, your Shenzhen is definitely the place for, for you to be because you're right, you're right in the middle of all of it. And then places like Shanghai and the, the surrounding areas, you know, there are, um, I, I see it as a consumer products um, area. They doubt, you know, Shanghai is so international that there's all kinds of everything there. There's logistics, there's, um, you know, lifestyle, fashion, you know, but really it's about, consumers getting in touch with products and having brands and things like that are done really well in, in Shanghai. And then um, the other cities in China are kind of, at, you know, kind of trying to create their niches. You have um, the, the, there's a uh, province that specializes in data centers. There's provinces that specialize in, in medical tourism. Everyone's, so there you see it, you see every, a locale trying to find a couple of things that fit into what the government's trying to promote as a, as a featured industry or a supported industry or a trajectory and then find out where they fit in the mix. But just, you know, historically speaking, that's how I see it, uh, the lay of the land here. The pandemic has held you in Thailand since Chinese New Year up until the time of this recording where you've had to run all your ventures virtually for an extended period of time, which lends itself to an interesting topic, which is the future of work. Can you tell us your thoughts on the future of work, how the young in Asia look at professional work life, and talk about the state of education, given that you're a professor, and how it's preparing the young for today's workplace in China? That is a controversial topic, uh, and it's something I have pretty strong opinions on. So I don't feel the, the higher education system prepares anyone for the work of tomorrow very well at all. I think people feel like they have to go for advanced degrees because to get them an edge up in the job placement market, we're hiring MBAs and masters and sometimes PhD with very little practical experience at all. And they've been living a fantasy kind of educational fantasy for, for, for many years. And they have a really hard time when they come in in their mid, maybe even late twenties into the job market, wanting to prove themselves by the time they're 30 so they can say they've made it. And it puts a lot of pressure on them. So I don't, uh, now what's alleviating that is the fact that you can pretty much learn anything you need to learn online. Um, what's lagging that is the fact that you don't get credit for what you know in a lot of organizations. So people use 
advanced degrees as kind of a, a gating factor, which I which we don't subscribe to in any of the companies I time uh, have founded, co-founded. So we look at people who have problem solving skills, think creatively, don't don't look at every next challenge in life or business as passing a test. You know, and so we we do some we do we 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 talk to a lot of candidates. We have a unique interview process, and we ask them some very non-traditional questions, and we put them through a probation period. But we very much, I very much believe that there, our company needs to be a place where they they can learn, they can grow their skill set, and then they can either become an entrepreneur, which I support fully, or or uh, they could uh, move on to a, to another job if they want, or they could stay with us. So, I think employers need to realize that the the, the young today are not getting the skills they need in the uh, in in the in the education system. They're going to make them successful in the workplace, and so the workplace needs to be cognizant of the fact that that you know you have to have your management team and your company itself be a place where people can. Say, hey, I don't know the answer to that. I'm trying. I don't know how to do that, but I'd love to learn and make that possible in your company. And we find that that helps us attract a lot of a, a lot of talent. That if it's properly articulated, makes them want to join us. Uh, you know, uh, versus a more you know established, larger type company. The One Belt, One Road initiative is vastly criticized by many Western countries. They just don't trust that China's intentions are pure. You understand the initiative as well as anyone. And you also understand China's intentions around the One Belt, One Road initiative as well as anyone. So I'd like to close the conversation today with some of your thoughts on the Belt and Road initiative, China's intentions as you see them and know them, and what the global impact down the road is going to be both for China and the rest of the world. Well, my interest in the, the Belt and Road Initiative stemmed from the fact that I liked the idea of it uh, when I first heard of it and then I started looking into it. And the, the reason I like the idea of it is because you know, I'm an American and more and more through the Gulf Wars and you know what we do these days in the current uh, administration, we've become a, uh, a, American has become a country that's really has this kind of gunboat diplomacy where, you know, toe the line, do pretty much what we say, or, you know, a gunboat's going to show up, you know, and we're going to threaten the use of force or, you know, where it's, it's, it's direct or indirect or whatever, it's always there. And to me, and, you know, get it's almost so naive that it is bound to be misunderstood in the press. The idea of say, you know, China has this situation where they spent the last 30 odd years retooling and rebuilding their entire country economy, lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, doing stuff that's never been seen in the, in the history of the planet, as far as the scale of it. And they have this industrial capacity and they, they built all the roads. I've driven all over China. I've driven to every single province except for, uh, for uh, Tibet. And, uh, and there's roads, they built roads ahead of the curve. They built trained and super high-speed rail ahead of the curve. 
they have built the infrastructure and and I saw that happen actually in Japan as well after the after you know the war in the 80s and in the 90s and I actually wrote some things about that in in my university days about how they 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 put the infrastructure in ahead of the the need and so China did that very much and so they have all this excess capacity so you know it's very practical and for them to say hey we'll make the loans very accessible we'll bring the talent we'll help you build these projects that you've been wanting to do we'll build them faster and better than you you're able to do with your own local companies and but you know and it does sound self-serving on the surface but when you think about it once you build a bridge or once you build a, a lay down rail in a country that's it you don't really have control i.e. china doesn't really have control of how that country uses it and whether they use it for improving trade with china or to you know trade with someone else taking trade away from china you know once you've built it it's theirs and um and it's very different from this gumboat diplomacy and so um yeah and i think china has you know there was at the at the at the, the beginning of uh last year in the spring there was a the, the second forum and they they've put some more policies to make sure that some predatory loan practices don't happen and some governance is happening but they've actually tried not to make it really highly regulated it's more of if the company wants to get involved in that country and if the bank wants to be involved in lending that country then the government will support it in, in you know in a very hands off way to be honest and it's it, it's 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 just provided another way of of saying you know we care about uh helping others with something that we're pretty good at um and for me on the surface at that point it makes a lot of sense and it's something that with this company i started kind of takes me out of my tech uh you know um yeah, i've been in tech in software my entire career so it's it's been been fun learning it understanding the policy behind it understanding all the issues and the perception issues and we just try at the belt and road advisor which is a company i co-founded which is to to have a website podcasts and and consultancy where we we just say look if you want to know more about it if you want to understand it here's some balanced uh information on it we don't only talk say the good things we don't, we don't only say the bad things we kind of say what we think is really happening and we focus on talking to people who are actually in the field working on projects so we've sponsored people to go on you know tracks to go actually photograph and interact with people on the 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 belt and road sites we've uh, we've interviewed them so we do a lot of stuff like that to just kind of get the real the real story behind the hype and the politicizing uh, that that does happen but it's amazing you you have you have a massive amount of trade going on between china and europe china and southeast asia china and africa and china and you know um even now through the 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 north pole with with northern europe that didn't exist you know 
seven years ago, five years ago, because these the the full um, just the the sheer you know massive amount of investment that's been put into building this infrastructure, and the belief is that people that trade together will probably not fight with each other. And I think, you know, honestly, as you know, when you look at human relations and you look at history, there's a lot to be said there. As long as there's an open way to turn of trade in, in with each other, then most likely people will work out their differences and, and, and get on with life. James, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Take care, be well, stay safe. Great. Well, thank you for having me and I hope that was useful. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.